I'm always afraid. I mean, I'm afraid right now. I've got a show happening on March 3rd, and I am so anxious. I mean, I have anxiety attacks every night. (laughs) I've always found myself on the other side of whatever it was I was afraid of, being okay and oftentimes better off. Uh, Be afraid, but do it anyway. Welcome to the Performers and Creators Lab podcast, where we are empowering an army of artists on the leading edge. My name is Holly Shaw, best-selling author of The Creative Formula, hypnotherapist, and creativity coach. On this weekly show, we're going to be helping you to excel at your craft and find your edge, because it is my belief that your creative mind, open to its own genius, has the power to change the world. You are listening to Episode 4, Be Afraid, But Do It Anyway. Fear. Let's talk about fear. When we think about being a performer, when we think about getting up on stage... Most of us, hopefully you who have chosen that path, think of that being on stage as a beautiful feeling. It's, you know, you're up there, you've got everybody's attention. It's an opportunity to share yourself, to shine, and also to to use that attention and create a magic stew. But sometimes there is a fear that lurks underneath that joy. And it has voices like, what if people don't like me? Or what if because of all this attention, I become a target of jealousy or hatred or a projection of someone else's demons? You know, being in the limelight means people will see you. And to be seen can be dangerous. Let's face it, history has shown that it's not always a good thing to stand out from a crowd. I help people with stage fright a lot, and so I talk about it a lot. And one of the ways that I like to explain stage fright to people is to say, okay, think about ancient prehistoric man. Can you imagine a situation where he or she or they would have had the attention of everyone in the tribe? I mean, can you actually imagine a situation for prehistoric man, woman, person where 3,000 people were giving them their undivided attention? Like, what kind of scenario would that have ever happened in? Not a good one, right? If you had 3,000 people's attention, you were probably about to get killed or chased or tied up for bait, right? So that couldn't have been a good scenario. And so on some level, when we're placed in that situation, on stage, in front of people, in an audience, our minds are alerting us to a danger, and we have a fight, flight, or freeze response. And that's why when you have stage fright, it can create this reaction in our bodies, the shaking, the sweating, the heart palpitations. It's the body's attempt to start that process of protecting you. But sometimes the fears that we have are not just that fight, flight, or fear reaction. Sometimes the fear comes from events 
that happen in your life and that can create an imprint on you that wedge themselves, however inconveniently, into your subconscious and threaten to play out, creating a sort of phantom threat that hangs over you. Now, when we look at great artists and musicians that have been gigging for a lifetime, it's hard to imagine that they have any fear. How could they possibly have fear? Or we want to discover their secrets, right? Like, surely they must have discovered some magical way of working through their fear in a, in a heroic manner in order to do what they do. And that's what you think when you look at someone like Raz Kennedy, Recently, I got to talk with Raz Kennedy. Oh my God, this guy, you guys, his resume is insane. He performed with the original Bobby McFerrin's Voicestra, and he has performed with legendary artists such as Whitney Houston, Kenny Loggins, Sting, Santana, Mickey Hart. Not only that, but he's one of the most sought-after vocal coaches Apparently, people call him the not-so-secret coach to rock royalty. He's worked with Metallica, Counting Crows, Hilary Duff, and many, many more. And get this, guys. The city of Berkeley named a day after him. No joke. Who gets a day named after them? Like a day on the calendar. We've got 365, and Raz Kennedy has got July 19th. July 19th is Raz Kennedy Day in the city of Berkeley. Okay? Very, very impressive stuff. Raz Kennedy is a living legend. But to me, it's not the resume of an artist that impresses me so much. Okay, it impresses me a little bit, but not so much. It's the deeper stuff underneath. Why does an artist do what they do? And what, I'm always curious, what are they afraid of? Where do they hide and where do they burst free from their own fears? I'm not as interested in all the stuff that people are trying to show me. People want to try to show you who they are. This is me, right? That's their persona. But I'm more interested in looking in the places where they're trying to hide. And, you know, not in an effort to out them or anything like that, but in an effort to reflect it to them, reflect it back to them. Because when we're reflected back, those things that we may be hiding even from ourselves, then we can be liberated from them. And I found in all the artists that I've interviewed and all the hundreds that I've coached, underneath every artist's body of work is an intoxicating cocktail of love and fear that drives them forward, the juice that keeps them hooked, love and fear. And so the interviews don't really get interesting to me until I start asking the questions that people can't seem to find an answer for, until we come to a place where they have to search until the answers and the stories and the love and the fear come welling up to the surface. And that's where... We begin with Raz Kennedy, with the hard questions. So 
So why singing? You- I don't know. I have no <laughs> idea. What, I have what is no idea. You know, it's been your life's work, right? It's not- I have no idea. I did start out as a singer, and I didn't start out wanting to be a singer. Like I said, I started out on the cello. Then I went to guitar. And as a kid growing up, through junior high and high school, I was an instrumentalist. I mean, I sang because nobody else would sing. In these groups that I would play in, we did R&B and soul. I was uh, playing when I was a kid in bands. And uh, I, I was into the guitar. That was my thing. But because no one in the band would sing, I always ended up doing doing the singing, not because I wanted to, but just from default, I ended up doing it. Okay, but why do you keep doing it? I mean, I don't know. I get it, but like, there's... I don't know. What is it for you about expressing what what makes you not get tired of it? I don't know. you listen to people sing, you... I don't know. I don't... I think maybe it's because I don't know how to do anything else. (laughs) <laughs> it's the thing that I've given so much time to, till you know, this is what I do and I'm good at it. So let me just stick with what I know. Let me try that question from a different angle. What? <laughs> I don't know why voice. I really don't. To tell what? you the truth, I, I would, if I had, if I did it all over again, I would probably end up being a doctor, like a medical doctor. Yeah. Honestly. I, I, really? Here's what I think. All right, this is going to get pretty weird and psychological and Great. Personal. Finally, here we go. When I was a kid growing up, the way I got into music was because of my mother. My mother was in the music business. In fact, she and my father broke up because of her interest in wanting a career in music, and he didn't want to have it. He, she said, forget it. This is what I want to do. It all happened to her very accidentally, how she stumbled into it. But anyway, as it turned out, she became the first woman and the first person of color who was a woman that held in an executive position in a major white male run music industry over at Columbia Epic Records. This is back in the 60s. This is a long time ago, long before women really had roles like this in the industry and a, and a person of color, especially so. But here she was working under people like Clive Davis back then. Um, managing the whole West Coast region for a major record company in promotion and marketing. So she was quite a maverick for her time. What I'm getting at is, given that situation and given that this was the late 50s, early 60s, um, she had to really separate herself out from being my mother and my sister's mother. Back in those days, a woman in a career like that wasn't deemed as somebody capable of having a career if they were also a mother. So she had to play like she didn't have kids, that she was single. And anytime we were with her, we were her younger siblings. My grandmother basically raised me. And I swear to God, I think the only reason why I got into music was so that I might, I might attract my mother's attention, my mother's love. Honest to God, because I saw where so much of her energy was directed towards other artists. She was a publicist. She was in management. She did promotion. She had publishing and management. And so all of her time was devoted to artists. And she didn't even live with us. You know, in fact, she had a place 
separate from where we grew up with my grandmother. She had to really keep some distance between us and her career. So to be honest with you, I think music was my way of reaching out to her with the hopes that she might notice me. And did that work? No, <laughs> it didn't. But by the time I realized it didn't work and hadn't worked and wouldn't work, I was already too deeply involved in it. And do you think that on some level, some part of you is still um, looking for that love? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I ended up marrying my interest in music. You know, a lot of artists, they go through a lot of turmoil trying to make it. Um, it's hard. They have a lot of failure. And so it's, I think it's helpful for them to hear your personal stories about, um, you know, the fact that you shared your mother's, about your mother's love. I think a lot of people can relate to that. And another question along those lines is, um, have you, were you ever terrified along the path? Um, were you ever in a situation, you know, where you got thrown into something above your head, you know, you were in over your head or um, you were just afraid or you failed really big that you can uh, share with us? <laughs> How did you All the time. All the time. I'll tell you one thing that was really traumatic for me and something that I'm still dealing with. And I think this is why I'm always afraid, no matter what it is that I'm about to do. When we come back, Raz shares his story of where his fear originates from and how he's been able to move through and pursue a successful career in music in spite of it. If you love listening to the Performers and Creators Lab podcast, then you should subscribe on your iTunes app. Subscribing is free, and you do it simply by the click of a button. And it means that new episodes show up in your playlist, and you never miss one. Also, while you're there, please rate and review the podcast on iTunes. And hey, listen to this. If you leave a review, good or bad, you'll automatically get entered to win an autographed copy of my book, The Creative Formula. That's right. I'm going to write a little message in there and take it to the post office for you and everything. So every week after our February 14th launch, I'm going to be picking one reviewer's name out of a hat and declaring a winner. So leave me a review and it could be you receiving that book. Listening to the Performers and Creators Lab podcast with me, Holly Shaw. Call and leave a comment at 415-870-7064. Again, that's 415-870-7064. Or you can find out more about us on the web at performersandcreatorslab.com. I'll tell you one thing that was really traumatic for me and something that I'm still dealing with. And I think this is why I'm always afraid, no matter what it is that I'm about to do. And it's, it comes from a time when I was really young. I was in the seventh grade. I was playing music. I went to the school for the first time. The school was a really tough school. A lot of gangs at this school. I was a new kid. So I stayed to myself. I didn't want to draw any attention to myself. You know, I wanted to be left alone. You know, there's a lot of, you know, really fierce kids in the school. And so I was kind of the artist. You know, I wasn't a real tough guy. So I stayed to myself. It was this one girl, Nikki, that would visit me during lunch and talk. And, and that was it. You know, I just really stayed alone. And uh, the school administration made an announcement. They says, look, the school is going to sponsor a Battle of the Bands contest. 
and all, because there was a lot of bands in L.A. I grew up in L.A., a lot of bands in all the schools. And at this time during, a, well, this was in the 60s, so there was a lot of money in schools at that time in California. So they had a lot of music programs. It was great. I don't know what's going on with the educational system, but back then it was great. Anyhow, the school was sponsored from this battle of the bands. There was a lot of bands at the school. And so I wanted to be in the contest because, of course, I had my band. Of course, the guys in my band did not go to my school. So I approached the school. I says, look, I'd like to be in the battle of the bands contest, but my players go to another school. Could I still participate? They said, yes. So my band participated along with all the other bands. And we won. We actually won the contest. So all of a sudden, I'm this little, obscure, isolated little kid. And now I'm, I've become like a big star at the school. You know, I'm the lead singer. So all of a sudden, everybody knows me. I'm like this famous kid. On, you know, we won the prize. We're going to play at the dance. Uh, there's all these various other you know, perks that we're getting. So a couple of days after we won, I'm doing my paper route. I had a paper route at the time. So after school, I would deliver papers in the neighborhood on my bike. My two bandmates were with me, the drummer and the bass player were on their bikes. And we were sort of glowing after our huge, you know, win. And a car pulls up and about four guys get out of the car. And they approach me and they say, Raz, uh, I hear you've been messing with my girlfriend. And I said, no, no, I haven't been messing with your girlfriend. Anyway, my two friends, they bolt, they split, and I get beaten up. So these four guys beat me up for winning the Battle of the Band contest. And it was basically a move to squash me. You know, kids are pretty territorial. Gangs are pretty, you know, they want to know that, Everyone understands their place. So they were putting me in my place. All right, you think you're the hip kid that can, you know, no, no, no. You're just, we're going to squash you and don't play at that dance next week because we'll beat you up again, right? So that experience showed me, at, before that experience, music had always been a way for me to generate positive attention. It was always the kind of thing where I always got positive attention. Um, it was always a thing that generated good stuff. So this was my first experience of seeing how music can, act, can, can also generate negative attention. So like, you know, artists can become targets. So this was something where I found, whoa, this music thing can be dangerous. Because then, you know, all of a sudden, you're an open target. So I have been dealing with that fear ever since. Yeah, I was just, my very next question was going to be, you know, has that created an imprint on you? Because I think, yes. because as a hypnotherapist, you know, I help people sort of unravel those subconscious fears that get planted in through experiences like that. Yes. You're like, I won this thing. I'm people see me if it's a great feeling. And then, and then if yeah. that happens, then I get beat up. And so then your mind keeps you from being successful because a part you're of afraid. that you're going to get beat up. Yeah. You're afraid you're going to draw some negative attention Deal with that every time. And how do you, because what I love is that you're consciously aware 
of that, that that's a cause and effect that's happening within you. So how do you, how do you work through that then? Because obviously it hasn't totally held you back. No, it hasn't helped me back. And well, it has, it has held me back. I think I would be a lot further if that wasn't there, but I've managed to keep moving forward in spite of it. I had a serious motorcycle accident. I used to ride motorcycles, you know, so I have this see the scar there. Yeah. So I spent three months in and out of the hospital, which gave me a lot of time to reflect. So when I saw how fragile life can be, because uh, I was quite young, I was only in my early 20s, uh, that's when I got it. It's like, you know, and I think that's where I finally adopted that philosophy. You know, you only live once and okay, I was beaten up, but you know what? I want to do music. And in spite of that fear of perhaps being harmed, if I put myself out, I'm going to put myself out because this world is only, it's here for us to enjoy. And although some people might want you to think otherwise, <laughs> Like, don't enjoy yourself because it might make me feel inferior. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. You're going to have to feel inferior or get your act together so that you can also feel as alive and as bold and as wonderful as I feel. Because you are as wonderful and as bold as anyone or I or anyone else. So believe that. And so I just decided to adopt that point of view. And I think that motorcycle accident really brought brought home the truth in spite of my fears in a way where I could go forward because that's really where I decided after that motorcycle accident, that's when I said, I'm going to do my music. I'm tired of like, I'm tired of like playing around the peripheral because when I was doing concert promotions, that was sort of my way of being around music. Although I wasn't the artist, I could be around artists. And I thought that that could be fulfilling enough because at least I would be in the arts but then after that motorcycle accident, I realized, no, that wasn't it. I was just BSing myself. So that's when I just, you know, I dropped everything. I just started practicing every day. I moved into a place where my rent was only $75 a month in order to buy the time that I needed to just get into my art. And that's where it all started. That was in 1978. So, 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 so inspiring. Wow. I, I'm, I've got chills all over my body from... Um, your story and and your willingness to share that with us. And, um, you know, I think you recognizing that, you know, you're not doing anybody a service by dimming your light and just owning that. And so that other people feel inspired to own that, I think is a really bold but necessary thing. So I just honor you for for doing that for yourself and for everyone who has benefited from working with you ever since. And now I want to play a little bit of Raz's music, a little bit of music from the man who decided to make his desire to play music, his desire to shine his light bigger than his fear. Sings the Beatles song, You've Got to Hide Your Love Away. Everywhere people stare Each and every day I can hear them laugh at me 
and I hear them say, Hey, you've got to hide your love away. Hey, you've got to hide your Can never win Seeing them and hearing them In the state I'm in Oh, how could she say to me Love will find a way Gabarun, oh, you Let me, let me Creators Lab podcast with me, Holly Shaw. Call and leave a comment at 415-870-7064. Again, that's 415-870-7064. Or you can find out more about us on the web at performersandcreatorslab.com. And I want to play a word association game to wrap it up. Okay. <laughs> this was a different interview from anything I've done before. That's good. That's good. People are interested in who you are and how you got there and like the reality of you, you know, is so much richer and and totally um it's just more rich and and endearing. Mm. Okay, so here's the game. So I do this with all my guests. I'm gonna say a word and then You're you scaring me. What? You're scaring me. <laughs> it's scary. Be afraid, but do it anyway. Yeah, right. Exactly. Raz told, taught me that. Raz taught me that. Okay. Okay. Ready? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Performance. Reveal. Reveal. I love that. Okay. Breath. Life. Voice. Communication. Transcendence. Uh, freedom. Teacher. Someone who loves. Song. Story. And last one. Fear. Face everything and rise. Olay. Yeah. Raz Kennedy is playing a show March 3rd at the Freight and Salvage in Berkeley, California. 
It's a beautiful music venue if you haven't been there. And this is his 65th birthday bash. And so the show is going to feature him and some of his equally incredible friends interpreting music from the songbooks of John Coltrane, Jimi Hendrix, Prince, Led Zeppelin, U2, ACDC, D'Angelo, and many more. And I've heard that there is going to be birthday cake there. So you can get tickets and find out more on his website at razkennedy.com. That's R-A-Z-Kennedy, K-E-N-N-E-D-Y.com. March 3rd, Raz Kennedy at the Freight and Salvage. If you want to see more from my interview with Raz Kennedy, there is actually video of this. Yes, and you can watch parts of it that you heard here. And there's going to be other parts of the interview I wasn't able to fit into this episode. So you can find that on the Interviews with Artists page. There's a menu link to that on my website at the Performers and Creators Lab.com. And again, that's Interviews with Artists uh, who are making it. Yeah. All right. Now it's time for the initiation exercise to help you become your most potent and powerful creative self. This exercise has two parts. It's called your love and fear cocktail. Part one. I'm sure if you were to ask any person to explain why they do what they do, you might get a very long-winded, nebulous, complicated, and messy explanation. You know, underneath what we do is a very beautiful and messy cocktail of love and fear and all kinds of stuff. And yet, you know, if we aren't clear on why we are doing something, then oftentimes that is why we lose our way when we're trying to do it. We lose touch with why it matters And sometimes revealing our why helps us move on from that thing if we need to, or at the very least, it helps us get re-inspired. So what about you? You, you there listening, what is your cocktail of love and fear? If I was to ask you, why this? What would you say? If you say, I don't know. Just imagine that I'll keep asking. Part two. Next time you find yourself feeling anxious or afraid about something, stop and ask yourself. Just stop yourself. Just see if you can stop the, the running on of time. I know sometimes we react instead of stopping and pausing and thinking. But try. Try to stop and ask yourself, What am I really afraid of? What am I really afraid of? And does this situation remind me of something I've been through before? And see if that helps you be able to talk yourself off the ledge a little bit and make a decision from a different place. Sometimes when we look under the hood, we realize that the thing that we're afraid of isn't actually all that scary. It's just... You know, maybe some leftover residue from something that happened to us a long time ago. And then you can ask yourself questions like Raz did. Is this something I really want to do? If I were to drop dead tomorrow, would I regret it if I hadn't done this? Is my desire bigger than my fear? In the words of Raz, 
Be afraid, but do it anyway. By understanding why we fear what we do, we may, we may not always conquer it, but we can exercise it and we can release some of its charge. We can demystify that, that, that scares us, and we can choose to act from a different place. We can choose to act from our love. The subconscious mind, man, is a wild thing. It's the part of us that holds on to everything that's ever happened to us. It's holds on to that conditioning, the habits and the beliefs, our very patterns that we live from exist there in the subconscious mind. You know, you have an experience when you're a child and your subconscious mind is right there, soaking it up like a sponge. It's storing it away as data, as a point of reference. And then when something else happens like that, it says, aha, I have a program for that. And you respond to that input just as you might have when it first happened. Despite any reason, any logical understanding sometimes that you might have right now, you're still acting from that place of when it first happened. We get imprinted. Now this is good in many ways. It helps us be able to do many things without consciously thinking about them, but it can also make it hard to change our reactions or our impulses. It's not impossible. It just means that we have to take extra steps and we have to get extra conscious. And hopefully this experience makes us not just better artists, but better people, more empathetic. You know, it definitely makes our work richer to understand fear and to be able to look inside and stare down those monsters that are lurking inside of us. Those monsters that we've allowed to stay there from our past. Topics and ideas for these episodes come directly from your posts and your comments in the Performers and Creators Lab community Facebook group. So be sure to find us and join us there. You can share what you're working on. You can meet some of the guests on the show and get support from me and the other members of the group. Show ideas also come from my amazing team of creative think tankers, Melanie Myers, Erica Milligan, and Hannah Romanowski. And a big thank you to my producers, Q4 and executive producer Robert Cholino and Voice America Network. And thank you for listening to the Performers and Creators Lab podcast. And be sure to subscribe so that you can look forward to a new episode every week. My name is Holly Shaw.